Hey, good morning. Good to see you. Uh, I want to welcome you here. Uh, my name is Mike. I'm one of the pastors. If it's your very first time, we're just really excited you're here. We had an amazing Next Step dessert last night, about 25 new people to Rocky Peak. Just a great, uh, great, uh, exciting to meet new, new people. And so if you're here, you're one of those new ones that are coming, uh, just welcome. We're glad you're here. Uh, secondly, I've got two or three things to bring you up to speed on before we go into our time of teaching. First of all, uh, next weekend, uh, next Sunday night, we do a, a two-Sunday night course here called The Movement at Rocky Peak. Uh, on the back of your note sheet, it talks about partnership, but really what this course is, is designed for anyone who calls Rocky Peak uh, their church home. And so you've been here a long time or you're brand new, uh, this is like a six-hour course, three hours each week. We just talk about our vision, our values, our strategies, uh, structures, a, a heavy kind of spiritual life component. It's a really great growth experience to go through this course. Uh, but just also will help you to know kind of why we do what we do, the way we do it around here. And so it's a great orientation. Uh, if you're new, really encourage you, especially if you're new. Um, if you want to become an official member here at Rocky Peak, what we call partners, uh, then uh, this is the course you need to take and be there both weeks. And so you can sign up online for that. And that starts next Sunday night. And I'll be teaching that both weeks. Uh, secondly, um, Two weeks from today, we're having baptisms again. And so uh, if you're a follower of Jesus, uh, maybe you've recently come to Christ, uh, this is what he says to do, to, to, to follow him. One of the first steps is we're baptized, you know, kind of publicly declaring our faith in Christ. And so if you haven't been baptized, this will be for you. If you're a longtime believer, have never been baptized, you've just been disobedient for a really long time, this would be great for you too uh, because you can just kind of get up to speed. So um, anyway, on the back of your program, it tells you what to do. Uh, you can write baptism on your registration card today, or you can call in, talk to Jeannie at her church office. And so those couple things coming up. Now, I want to take a few minutes and talk to you about uh, the assignment here at Rocky Peak. For those who have been here for, uh, since last fall, you know that last fall we did a major series called The Assignment. And it was all about this assignment that Jesus gave us when he left to go into all the world and share the message of Jesus, whether it's here locally in our community or around the world. And so we talked about that. It was a series about, about sharing Christ with our friends and that kind of thing. And uh, one of the things we did that was part of that series was uh, we talked about uh, the need that we have to enlarge and refresh our campus for the, God that's, the people that God's bringing. And so we went through a kind of a campaign and so on. And so right after that, kind of behind the scenes, a lot has been going on since last fall. And so some of you know parts of this, but uh, like the first thing we did is you got to the far side of our campus. So we have the five buildings here, the big one here, uh, the next building, that's actually six, this one, and then the, the, kind, of the, kind of the kids ministry building and the student ministry building. And there's three portables out there. So the first portable was our offices, our church offices. So the first step of the project was to kind of dismantle that, uh, kind of demo that, and to turn that into some nice adult space uh, for all our courses and classes and stuff. And so that was our first step. Uh, secondly, then that allowed us, one of the things that allowed us to do was to move our senior ministry on Sunday mornings over there to that building. And so then the next step was to move our fourth and fifth graders from the farthest portable out there, we call it the F building, to move them into the, uh, student, the, the kids' center, this second major building here. And so we did that this spring. Uh, third step happens today. And those of your parents of, of high schoolers or middle schoolers, you may know this, but uh, if you don't, you should ask your kid for more information. Uh, that as of today, we're moving all students out of the student center, and we're moving them over to the remodeled F building, the furthest portable. It's kind of been temporarily remodeled just to accommodate them during the season of building. 
And that's all preparing the way for us in here to in the near future move out of this building and into the student center. So right now, it's, it's not ready to go. There's no AV in there or whatever. Uh, and so we, we're preparing for that. One of the things that we want to do is, I don't know if you've ever been in the bathrooms in the, in the, in the kids' center. Uh, if you have, you've probably only made that mistake once. Uh, it's a memory that will last uh, for a long time. I think it's been used since the time Jesus was here, and uh, it pretty much smells like it. And so uh, before we move us here over into Student Center there for the building project, uh, we really want to try to uh, refurbish those, redo those bathrooms. So there, those will be our major bathrooms then. And so uh, we're hoping to do that in September. Uh, and then sometime this fall, we're going to move all of us over there for about five or six months while this is being redone and while the whole kids center is being redone for our kids. So uh, you asked me exactly, well, when, Mike, will that exactly happen? And I would say, um, I don't know. Uh, because if you've ever dealt with construction, you know how this is. It's a very multiplex thing, a lot of irons in the fire. You know, one domino doesn't fall, these don't fall. And so it's a complex thing, but we're in the final stages of our design uh, process. And once that design process is finished, uh, the bids will go out, the, the plans will go back to the city. They've already gone through one check, but they'll go back to the city. And then uh, we'll take them to our contractors and they'll uh, price it out. And then we'll have a price tag on this thing. We'll be able to say, how much money do we have? Uh, how much money does it cost? What can we do? What's the scope? What can we do now? What has to be done later? So that's kind of where we're at. Now, financially, uh, we're doing well. And I want to thank those of you who have been very faithful in your giving, kind of over and above your normal giving. You know, last year we made a commitment as a church uh, at, during that time, that campaign, to give uh, $5.2 million over the next three years to help fund this thing. And uh, that we are right on track. You've been very uh, faithful in that. And so we have received already 46% of those gifts, even though we're only nine months into the three months. And so uh, way to go. Some of you are giving even more than you committed to give. And so we're excited about that. Uh, and so we, what, once we have, uh, we, we get all the plans in and all, we'll be able to see how much we can afford and what's the order. So I will keep you posted. I'll keep you up to date. But uh, I'm, I'm hoping, praying, crossing my fingers and my toes that this fall, uh, at some point, and you notice it's a wide margin this fall, uh, uh, before January, no, uh, that this fall that sometime we'll be able to move over there and then we'll be over there for about five, five or six months while this building is being totally redone, turned around, expanded, and so on. So just wanted to give you an update on that. It's all great news, good stuff. Uh, we're very excited about it, but wanted you to be up to speed. So that sound good? That sound like a plan? All right. So, hey, and I, I got to tell you something this. I want to prep you for this. I may be coming back to some of you at 11 o'clockers and asking you to prayerfully consider, if, uh, if you don't have kids in the kids' ministry or if it works for you, whatever, to prayerfully consider during that time, uh, that five or six months, of uh, perhaps going to trying out our Saturday night service, uh, especially, maybe our nine o'clock, especially because space is going to be limited over there. And we will be having a video venue uh, that will help with that. That'll be great full-size screen and live worship, and it'll help. But we're still going to be a little bit tight at this 11 o'clock service. And so for some of you, you might just be going to get that on a radar, start thinking about that, praying about that, and may, may have your name on it. If you've never been to Saturday night service, it's really a fun service. It's one of my favorite services. I can say whatever I want because there's no time limit there. And, uh, and then I say a lot of things I shouldn't, and I can clean that up for Sunday morning. And so it is, uh, it, it is a lot of fun. It's kind of raw and unedited. So uh, it's a, 
you know, you may try it and never go back. But uh, anyway, uh, this, 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 this announcement was so long, I feel like we should close the prayer and have the offering and just go home. But um, I did prepare, and so uh, I'm sure we'll be, we should be out by three, I think. Uh, so uh, if you guys are ready to go, I'm ready to go. You guys ready to go? All right, inside your program, message note sheet, uh, take that out. If you're, if, you haven't, if you're new, you'll, you'll need to know that. And I'm going to jump in, and we're going to uh, pray. Okay, let's pray together. Jesus, thank you so much for what you're doing at our church. And we just love you, and we love what you're doing in our life. We love what you've done for us in your life, your death, your resurrection, the new life you're giving us. And every week, uh, we gather here to come under your leadership, your teaching, to hear from you. That's why we're here. It's not about me. It's not about uh, anything that happens up here. It's about you. It's about hearing your voice. And so we pray that you'd speak to us through your word today in a powerful way. And I pray that in Christ's name. Amen. Well, today we're continuing our series uh, in the Gospel of Mark. And for those of you who are brand new, uh, this is a series we started back in January. Uh, it's called Jesus the King. And it's based on uh, the writings of one of the leaders of the early movement of Jesus. His name is Mark. He's a close personal friend of the Apostle Peter towards the end of Peter's life. Uh, Peter, uh, he's been interpreting for Mark, uh, th uh, for, for Peter throughout his, his uh, career. And so now at the, the end of his uh, life, Peter's life, Mark's going to write it down, kind of the, the, uh, the, the teaching, the, uh, the life of Jesus as seen firsthand through the eyes of the Apostle Peter. And so, so far in this series, we've watched as Jesus has got into the northern part of Israel. It's called the Galilee. He's launched his movement. His message is very clear that the kingdom of God that was uh, been prophesied by Israel's prophets for hundreds of years, for a thousand years, that it's actually very near. This time where God is going to break into time and space and the kingdom of God is going to come to earth, a kingdom of righteousness, a kingdom of peace, a kingdom of justice, uh, a kingdom of prosperity. That It's very near. And then not only did Jesus make that claim, but he actually, uh, he begins kind of ushering in the power of the kingdom, kind of a preview of coming attractions, because wherever he goes, he's bringing the power of the kingdom. He's healing the sick. He's walking on water. He's multiplying loaves. He's uh, raising people from the dead. And so, uh, so far, most of that activity in the gospel of Mark has been in the north of the country, in the area we call the Galilee. Now, if you were here last week, you saw that Jesus began to expand his borders. And so for the first time, he goes north out of Israel up to the cities of Tyre and Sidon. You remember that? And then he kind of retreated back down to the eastern seaboard of the Sea of Galilee, which is a Gentile area. So it's really the first time he's gone there. It's kind of a preview of coming attractions. You know, after the, after the life and death of resurrection of Jesus, the movement of Jesus will eventually kind of go outside of Israel. The message of the kingdom will go outside. So it's kind of a preview. But uh, last week we saw him coming into this eastern side. Of course, most of these people had never seen Jesus. They'd never heard him teach. They'd never watched him perform a miracle. And while he was there, Jesus healed the man, you remember last week, who, uh, who had a hard time uh, speaking and he was deaf. And so now the crowds are coming and we're kind of seeing a repeat of what happened on the western side earlier in the book, that the crowds are coming of Gentiles on the eastern side. And today we're going to come to a series of events, actually three events. Think of it like a, a three-act play today, uh, kind of th three, three scenes that come together to make one story uh, that happens on the eastern seaboard with these Gentiles. And the very first event that happens is going to be very similar to an event that happened perhaps several months before on the western side. Remember back on about uh, a few months before, Jesus was on the western side, and you remember people, the crowds were coming. And uh, there was one day, there was a crowd of over 5,000 people, maybe five, 10,000 people with women and children. 
And, and remember, he fed the 5,000, right? And, and do you remember how many, uh, how many uh, loaves he had that day? Uh, no. Uh, five. There you go, yeah. Okay, see, Sunday school paid off. Uh, so, yeah, he had five loaves and how many fishes? Two little fishes, two sardines, right? And so, and he fed over 5,000, right? So that was, remember, that, that's Western side stuff. These people haven't seen that. Uh, and so now we're on the Eastern side, and it's going to be a similar scenario. Except these people have come, and they are really taken with Jesus. This is new. Uh, they've not seen all the miracles. They've not heard the teaching. And so they are taken with Jesus. Many of them have traveled from a, a great distance. Uh, and when they get there, they just don't want to leave. Now, I don't know if you've ever had something like this. Maybe like a vacation you're on, you just don't want it to end. Uh, maybe it's a concert. You're just kind of like, another encore, please. You just do not want it to stop. You know, you're at Disneyland, and it's like, no, we don't have to go. It's, whatever. That's not me. But uh, anyway, you've had an experience like that. Well, that's how these people are. They don't want to leave. They don't want to miss anything that Jesus is doing. And so they've actually been camping out, apparently, for like three days. And now they're running out of food. And so Jesus is concerned. There's probably some elderly in the crowd. There's probably some people that are maybe not that healthy or whatever. He's concerned some of them aren't going to make it back. They're not in the middle of nowhere, right? And there's no, there's no McDonald's. There's no fast food. There's nothing to eat. And so he's concerned. And so he's going to do something very similar that he did on the western side where he fed the 5,000. He's going to feed 4,000. Now, last time... It was 5,000 men plus women and children, so actually much more. This time it's actually 4,000, kind of all-inclusive, so it's a smaller group. We're going to see some differences. There's going to be different amounts of fish and different amount of uh, uh, loaves. It's going to be much easier for them this time. Uh, and so uh, it's going to be a little different. But one thing that's going to strike you, it may strike you, maybe not. Maybe you just kind of read over it. No, I didn't notice that. But, um, but it may strike you. So it seems kind of weird because the disciples kind of act like this is the first time this has happened. Right? Like you'd expect him to go like early on, like, oh, I've seen this movie before, right? I, I know it's going to happen. Watch this. Yeah, this is going to be awesome. But, but they're like, no, what do we do? Uh, and so uh, part of that is, is that I think that uh, we forget. We read through the Gospel of Mark, like it's a very short book. We read through it rapidly. We forget it's taking three years for this to unpack. You know, so, so something that happened now and six months ago or something, it doesn't seem like right together. And in between that intervening time, Jesus has met with lots of big crowds, and he's never repeated that miracle, so they're not really expecting it. But on top of that, one of the big themes we're going to be seeing today is one of the big topics of the Gospel of Mark is how dense the disciples are. Like, they're just really slow, right? Very challenged, uh, which is always really encouraging for me, because like, if they didn't get it, hey, there's hope for me, right? So... Um, so like, and they turned out okay, right? Look how stupid they were. Like, I don't think I've ever been that stupid. There's hope for me. So uh, anyway, uh, that's been one of the big themes. And today that's going to play out again. We're going to see it again. So if you've got your Bibles, let's go to uh, Mark chapter 8. Um, there in your note sheet is a section that's called 4,000. And uh, we're going we're to jump in and walk through. Remember, there's three things that happen. Kind of three act set, uh, th three, three scenes in this story. But they all tie together. And that's why we're handling them together. So, uh, verse 1. So, during those days, another large crowd gathered. So, when was the first big large crowd he's referring to? Chapter 6, for the 5,000, right? So, we're going to kind of repeat. So, since uh, they had nothing to eat, Jesus calls his disciples to him. And he said, hey, I've got compassion for these people. They've already been with me three days. They have nothing to eat. If I send them away hungry, they're going to collapse on the way because some of them have come a long distance. So, he's concerned. And so, his disciples said, hey, but... 
And now you'd expect them to go like, oh yeah, I remember this one. Uh, but they don't go, they go, no. Uh, well, where in the world can we get, you know, this remote place? I mean, there's no Sam's Club. There's nothing, you know, uh, can get enough bread to feed them. And so they kind of seem stumped. And so Jesus says, well, how many loaves do you have? And maybe at this point it begins to click in. But they, they say, well, we've got seven. So how many do we have last time? Five. Okay, so this is going to be a much easier miracle. So... Um, <laughs> It's kind of like a head start, you know, running head start. Like, well, that's not a big deal. You know, 4,007, that's what. Anyway, so verse 6, uh, so he tells the crowd to sit down on the ground. And when he'd taken the seven loaves, given thanks, uh, he prays to his father. He breaks them. He gives them to the disciples, set them for the people, and they did so. And so this is going to take a while, right? Feed 4,000 people, and it's going to take a while. They come back for the uh, second course. So they had a few, few small fish. So how many did they have last time? Two. So we've gone up to a few. Much easier. And... Um, he gives thanks for them, tells them to distribute them. So they, they do this, right? So the people ate, they're satisfied. And then afterward, the disciples pick up how many basketfuls? Seven. How many did they have last time? Twelve. Good. So there's some differences in these two events. Uh, in the Greek, it's much clearer that uh, these baskets are much bigger baskets than the other baskets, though. So there was 12 small ones before, seven big ones now. And they pick it up. And so about 4,000 men. Now, in the Greek, it doesn't say men. It just says 4,000. seems to be an uh, all-inclusive number, 4,000 people were present. And then uh, gets in the, the day, he sends them away, and he gets uh, into the boat with his disciples, and they go back to the west side, to the region of Dalmanutha. Now, we don't know exactly where Dalmanutha was. We believe it was in northwest quadrant of the Sea of Galilee, near Capernaum. And so they, they land in Dalmanutha, right? And so, so, so that's scene one. Scene one, uh, uh, similar scene, but it's eastern side, different crew, Gentiles, not, not Jews. They've come because of the miracles, uh, three days. Jesus does an amazing miracle again. I'm just not going to go into how amazing it was because we just covered it a few weeks ago uh, in chapter 6. But anyway, so uh, that's scene one. Now they're back in the boat, go to the west side. Now, so now they're back in the west side, which means they're back in Jewish territory. And so when they get there, we're going to meet a, a group of people that we've met many times before. And they're called the Pharisees. Now for those of you who are new, just a quick review. Pharisees started off as an amazing group of men. They started about 200 years before the, the, uh, the, the time of Christ. And uh, they, they kind of grew up in a time of conflict when their nation was conquered by the foreign uh, armies of Syria. Uh, they're trying to get them to deny God. And these people were, no, we love God. We're going to follow God. We will pay for it with our lives if necessary. They loved God. They loved his words. They started off awesome. But then as movements often do, went downhill, right? And, and so they went from having a true relationship with God to ritual and religion. And if you're here earlier in this series, we talked about the dangers of religion and how one of the greatest enemies in our life, one of the greatest enemies of Jesus is religion. It's, it's what put him to death. And, and so uh, we talked about how religion kills, and that's what happened. And the way it worked out in their life is they began adding a lot of man-made rules and rituals to what God had said. They started adding to God's word, and it just it sucked the life out of the relationship. So by the time of Jesus, he comes along, and they just didn't like Jesus because he didn't honor all the rules they'd grown up with. And so, for example, back in chapter 2, we meet him for the very first time. You remember this? Uh, Jesus is going to dinner with a man who's a man far from God, a man named Levi, and they're just really ticked off because in their world, uh, if you want to get close to God, you stay away from people who are far from God. That's their, one of their mottos. And so uh, they don't understand, why are you hanging out with a sinner, right? Why, why do you do this kind of, they're irritated. By the time you get to chapter three, really ticked off with Jesus because he healed the man on the Sabbath against a no-no. 
And so uh, they start plotting with another group that we'll meet later on today called the Herodians in chapter 3. And, and the Herodians were like Jewish people that kind of sold their soul to, for political favor. They supported King Herod, who was the, the king put in place by Rome. And so most of the Jews hated Rome, but they were kind of cooperating, supporting Rome. And they kind of sold their soul for power and prestige and political influence. And so these groups normally, Pharisees and Herodians would hate each other. They're like, you know, uh, Republicans and Democrats, something like that. And so, uh, so, uh, so anyway, they, they're actually coming together to co-sponsor a bill to kill Jesus. And, and so that's chapter 3. By the time you get to chapter 7, a delegation of Pharisees. And we learn from the secular historian Josephus, uh, that is a Jewish Roman historian, that there are about, only about 6,000 Pharisees, but they had tremendous influence. And so in chapter 7, they sent a delegation up from spiritual headquarters of Jerusalem to Galilee. And when, when they get up there, they're upset with Jesus because he's not following all the traditions of the elders, washings of hands and things like this. And, and so we've seen them time and time again. And here's what I want you to catch. Jesus has been very patient with them, hasn't he? And I tell you, my, my heart goes out to these guys. Some of you have grown up in a very religious, in a bad sense, background. Religion can mess with you, right? It can screw you up for life. Some of you are still screwed up. Uh, but it, it can just screw you up. I mean, it's just like, it just, it just messes with your mind and who God is, and it just kind of pollutes everything. And so religion is, is a bad thing. And so when these guys have grown up in a very religious context, and so my heart goes out to him because Jesus comes along, he's breaking all the rules they've been raised with, and you're kind of like, oh, man, I get it why it was hard for them, right? That's kind of hard. But Jesus had been so patient. He'd been patient to educate them, patient to like, take their abuse, uh, patient, he's still talking with them, he'll teach them, he'll pull out the Bible, he'll, right? so he's been very patient. But we're gonna see today that his patience runs out. We're gonna see that he comes to a point where these guys just aren't getting it. And what's going to happen today is when he gets off the boat uh, there on the western side, the Pharisees are going to come, and, and they're going to ask him for a sign from God that he's really been sent by God. Now, I don't know about you, but when someone's like, raise the dead, fed 5,000, commanded storms, walked on water, healed the lame, uh, opened the eyes of the blind, healed the, the deaf. That's pretty good in the whole sign department. Anything? <laughs> pretty strong. It's like, yeah, but what else do you have? Right? We're not really sure. And so we're not sure what they're looking for. Maybe they're looking for like Moses, you know, stick your arm in your, in your coat and it's kind of leprosy or throw down your stick and it becomes a snake. We don't, we don't really know. But they're going to come up and they're going to ask him, we, we need another sign. And uh, it's kind of crazy. Uh, Jesus is going to say, you know what? Um, you're not getting any more signs. And he's going to do something today that we've never seen him do before. He's going to walk away from somebody. And here's something I want you to catch, that it's possible to come to our relationship with Jesus where our heart gets so hard that he turns and walks away from us. And here's what I want you to catch. The reason he's walking away is not because he's at the end of his ropes and you've gone too far and I don't care what, what you say, I'll never forgive you. 
He's not sick. But one thing we see about Jesus is that he doesn't care where you're coming from or what you've done. He's always willing to take you back, right? Always. But there comes a point where Jesus realizes that for some people, they've resisted the work of God in their life so long, their heart has become so hard. It's not that he won't forgive them. It's that they won't ask for forgiveness. Like we can go to a place where our heart becomes so hard that Jesus realizes my time here is over. And what's happening is that their window of opportunity is about to close. Um, and so let's see what happens. So the second scene, uh, verse, 14, uh, verse 14, the Pharisees come. So remember, he just landed on the western side. The Pharisees come. They begin to question Jesus and to test him. And it's interesting. In the Greek, it actually is the word that could be translated test or tempt. Uh, it's the same word that's used back in Mark chapter 1 where Satan tempted Jesus. And so there's a sense here that they're asking for a sign, but I want you to catch this. They don't really want a sign. They, they, they don't look, they're not looking for evidence to follow Jesus. They're looking for an excuse not to follow. So they've become posers. And this is the mark of a Pharisee, it's hypocrisy. It's pretending to be something that you're not. And so they, they ask him for this sign, and he sighs deeply. He knows it's not like that wouldn't change your mind. He could do anything. He could rise from the dead. It wouldn't change your mind, right? Which is exactly what's going to happen. Um, and so he sighs deeply. He senses frustration. Uh, and he, he says, why does this generation? So catch this. Not just the Pharisees. It's the whole generation is going to see sign after sign after sign and yet still not turn. He says, I tell you the truth, no sign will be given it. And then catch this. And then he what? He left them. That's a sad day in the life of any person where Jesus says, this is just barking up the wrong tree. I'm I'm out. But he turns around and he gets back in the boat and he crosses the other side. It's like, I'm done here. Okay, so that's the second scene. We'll come back to that later. Now, third scene. Disciples, they're back in the boat, right? They forget to bring bread. Uh, so you kind of visualize this. Hey, Pete, you got the bread? No, man, I thought you had the bread. I had the bread last time. It's your turn. It's a Wednesday. You always get the bread on Wednesday. Philip, did you get bread? No, I was going to Fresh and Easy, and I got distracted. I didn't... Didn't get the bread. Oh, come on. Did anyone get the bread? Right? So this discussion's going on. And Jesus, his mind's not on bread. His mind is on the Pharisees. Now, it's interesting. We're told one place that Jesus once in the gospel said, the yeast of the Pharisees is hypocrisy. I don't know if you've ever done baking. I, I've never really baked any bread. I've eaten lots of bread, but I've never really <laughs> baked any bread. My wife has baked bread uh, that I've eaten, uh, but my understanding of this, not being a baker, my understanding is you need yeast to make bread rise, right? And you don't need a lot, just a little bit of yeast to make a lot of dough rise. Now, for us non-bakers, that's important here. So, so in the Bible, yeast is often used as a metaphor for sin or evil. The idea is it doesn't take a lot of sin in your life to spread. 
Like you tolerate sin in your life, it will spread. If a church tolerates blatant sin in a church and doesn't deal with it, it spreads. It's compared to leaven. It's compared to yeast in 1 Corinthians 5. And so uh, Jesus is going to use this analogy. He's still thinking about the Pharisees. And these men who pose as spiritually mature, they pose as men who are seriously pursuing God. And the reality is they're not open to God's word in their life at all. You see, they, they're hypocrites. And so Jesus is going to turn, with this on his mind, he hears the conversation about bread. He senses a, a teachable moment. And he says, guys, I want you to beware, as you lead my movement in your own life, I want you to beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and the yeast of Herod, who kind of pretends, wants to hear John the Baptist, pretends and then kills him. He says, I want you to be, like, as you lead this movement forward, you, you, you have just got to watch your life for hypocrisy. Like, nothing will kill your relationship with God faster than hypocrisy, pretending to be something that you're not. Like, nothing will destroy a church faster than hypocrisy, right? So, so beware of hypocrisy. So he's throwing this out there, right, hoping that they're going to catch on. It'll be a memorable moment. They'll think, Brad, they'll never forget this illustration. Of course, it goes over their head. They're like, dude, what's he talking about? I don't know. I think it's the bread thing. I think it's really irritated him. I told you to get the bread, man. Now Jesus is mad, right? So, so it's going to go over their head, and this is just going to be like, too much for Jesus. And it's like, are you serious? I mean, yesterday, I fed 4,000 people with seven loaves. We've got one loaf. Bread's not a problem for me. I can do a lot with a little. Right? I don't need a lot, right? We got the one loaf. Um, and, and, and so, I want you to picture, you will not catch this until we get further on in Mark, but, but probably most of you won't know this. Everything in the Gospel of Mark leads up to the end of chapter 8. Everything after chapter 8 goes back to what happens in chapter 8. It's like a mountaintop. Everything leads to it, everything leads up. We are almost to the end of Jesus' public ministry in the north of Galilee. Very soon, he's going to start traveling to Jerusalem to be executed. Right? So we're coming to the end of this major time of the disciples traveling with him, right? So they've been with him 24-7. They, they've seen all the miracles. Remember back in chapter 4 when he's teaching in parables and they're saying, why are you teaching in parables, these short stories? Why are you teaching the crowds in parables? He says, because they're not ready for anything else. But he said, but to you, he says, they're outsiders, but you're insiders. And to you, I'll explain everything privately. You remember that back in chapter 4? He said, the crowds out there, they're like the people in Isaiah's day. And he quotes Isaiah 6, they have eyes, but they don't what? See, they have ears, but they don't hear. He says, he says so I, I can't really talk to them, but to you privately, I'm giving you the secrets of the kingdom. Do you remember that? And so he's been with them 24-7. They've seen the miracles. They've heard the teaching. They've had the private instruction. And yet it's like they're no further ahead than the crowds. Like they're seeing all the miracles, but it's like two and two equals what? Three, five? They're just not getting yet. Like they're seeing what he's doing but they're not understanding significance. Do you remember back in chapter six, after he feeds the 5,000, he sends his men out in the sea, he goes up in the hill to pray, middle of the night he comes walking on the water, remember they freak out, and, and, and Mark says they're terrified, and then Mark says this, 
because they had not understood about the loaves, for their heart was what? You remember it? Hard. And so what we're going to see today, Jesus throws out this teaching, hey, beware of the, the leaven, the, the, the yeast of the Pharisees and Herod. And, and they are going to go like, dude, I told you to bring the bread. And Jesus is going to be, are you serious? We're almost done here. We're going to be heading to Jerusalem soon. And you guys are like, no. For, and so he's going to ask them seven questions. They're just like riveting, challenging, rebuking questions. Like, guys, wake up, right? And so let's see what happens. So the disciples, verse 14, they'd forgotten to bring bread except for one loaf. So they had something to work with uh, that they had with them in the boat. And so Jesus picks up on this and he says, hey, be careful. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and, and that of Herod, which is this hypocrisy, right? Pretending to be something you're not. And so they, they discuss this with one another. And they're like, oh, what do you think he means? And they say, well, I think it's because we have no bread. And so in verse 17, Jesus, aware of their discussion, he says to them, why are you still talking about having no bread? Like, what's wrong with you? You know, do you see and not understand? Are your hearts, what? Hardened, you know, like the crowds? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? Like, what's wrong with you? Don't you remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? 12. <laughs> yeah. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Seven. Seven. And he said to them, do you still not understand? Now, I don't know about you. I love these guys. They are so dense, aren't they? They are so dense, and it gives me such courage. Because they become so brilliant later on. It's like if people this dense can become that brilliant, there is hope for me. There's hope, right? Because I often relate more to them now than later, right? So anyway, uh, so, so that's the passage, right? So we have these three scenes, uh, feeding 4,000 on the eastern side, come back to the western side, hit the, uh, the Pharisees. Jesus says, don't have time for you, walks away, come back on the way back, talks to his men about the bread, the yeast, the... the, the uh, the uh, Pharisees. And so from this, uh, these three stories, uh, three events, I want to highlight two important principles for our lives. One that flows from the Pharisees, one that flows from the disciples. So there in your note sheet is the first one. It's a section called Too Far. And uh, here's the, the principle. It's, a, it's possible to go too far, okay? That in our relationship with God and our spiritual life, it's possible to go too far, to to resist the work of God in our life so long that we go too far. Uh, let me flesh this out. Let's think back in the history of the Bible. This is often taught in the Bible. Uh, and just to be clear, what I'm saying here, I am not saying that we go too far for Jesus to forgive us. I'm saying we go too far to the place we don't want to be forgiven. Do you see the difference? 
Okay? There's nothing you can ever do that could keep Jesus from loving you and forgiving you if you come and you ask him for forgiveness and you come under his leading, you repent. Nothing. But what we often don't understand, and, and even in Christian so we often don't understand this, and this is so powerful, that when you resist the work of the Holy Spirit in your life, it changes you. I don't know if you've ever heard someone say this, but someone might say this, uh, I know this is wrong, but I'm gonna do it anyway. I, I'm in love with this person, I know it's wrong, I'm gonna leave my family, I'm gonna have this affair, I know it's wrong, but I know Jesus will forgive me. And what we think is that we can sin today and that we will remain unchanged and that we will come back and we will want repentance tomorrow. What we fail to understand is we resist the work of God in our life, that every time we resist, it changes us. That our heart becomes a little bit harder. It becomes a little harder to hear what God is saying, and we care a little bit less what God is saying. It's not an issue of whether Jesus will forgive you. It's an issue of whether you want Jesus to forgive you. And you see this principle throughout the Bible. So for example, uh, nation of Israel, they come out of Egypt, right? God saves them out of slavery, brings them to Mount Sinai, gives them an uh, invitation. I want to be your God. You'll be my people. If you trust me, follow, I'll bless you. I'll protect you. I'll give you the promised land, right? And so they say, yes, we want in on that deal. And then instantly, they begin to rebel against God time and time again, seeking after other gods, rejecting his leadership, complaining, sexual immorality, just all these things, right? And so finally it comes to the point, some of you remember the story, where a couple of years in, God says, that's it. You've gone too far. You're not going in the promised land. You're gonna wander in the wilderness for the next 38 years, and then you're gonna die here. Now your kids are gonna be able to go in, but you have gone too far. Remember that? Okay, let's fast forward, about 800 years. God has been warning the nation of Israel. They're now in the promised land. God's been warning them for hundreds of years. If you don't get your act together, you don't come under my leadership, you continue to worship false gods, you continue to oppress the poor, you continue to have injustice and bribery in your courts, you continue to have violence and murder in your streets, you continue to have sexual morality, tearing your families apart, you continue to rebel. Uh, he says, I, there's gonna come a point where I mean, I have no choice but to kick you out of the land. You're going to lose the very land that I promised you. And so for hundreds of years, God sent his prophets time and time again. For the most part, they rejected. Finally, in the year 586 B.C., Babylon comes, destroys Jerusalem, levels the city, takes the people away, a thousand miles away. It was a low point in Jewish history up to that point to the nation of Babylon. They're now exiles, right? And so the, the writer of Scripture in Second Chronicles, looking back on that time, summarizes what happened. And I want you to look at it there. And you know, she's 2 Chronicles 36. He says, the Lord, and remember we see Lord in all caps. What's that mean? Yahweh. Yeah, it's a personal name of God. It's the way the translators uh, highlight that. Uh, Yahweh, uh, the God of your fathers, their fathers, sent word to them, to his nation, uh, through his messengers, through the prophets, again and again, 
Why? Because he had pity on them. And so what you see is that God is a loving God. He's very patient with us. Usually when he's talking about something, he usually talks multiple times. It's just once and done. It's like he's going to continue to speak, bring more pressure to bear. Uh, and so uh, God had done this to them. And he said, because he had pity on his people. He didn't want to destroy them. He says, but they mocked God's messengers. And they despised his words, and they scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of Yahweh was aroused against his people. And catch this, there was no more what? Remedy. Underline that. There was no remedy. He had sent messengers. He brought discipline. There was nothing left to do except the ultimate judgment of losing the very land that he'd given them, being taken away from their nation. They're like a patient that's been going to the doctor and says, you got cancer, but we can, we can solve this. We can do chemo, we can do radi- radiation. And you're just like, no, I don't want to go through that. I hear your hair falls out, and I don't want to do that. So you just kind of go, you just kind of keep, in every appointment, he tells you the same thing. And finally, he comes a day, he says, it's too late. It's too late. There's no remedy. I can't help you. You're going to die. There's nothing I can do. Now let's fast forward to the New Testament. We come to the Pharisees. We've talked about them, their background. We've talked about how patient Jesus has been. We've talked about how hard it would be to be born a Pharisee and how that religion kind of screws you up and they've been screwed up their whole lives. You know, Jesus is so different and he's just this wild carpenter guy from the north. I've never been to seminary. It's hard to listen to him, right? It's, it's not going to be the easiest thing. And Jesus is so patient. And he keeps on doing miracles to prove he's right. He keeps opening the Bible, but they will not listen. And they just, their hearts keep getting harder and harder and harder until finally they come and say, okay, we need a sign. He's like, I'm done here. There's no, no signs. I, I don't know what else to do for you. Like, I've taught you. I've raised people from the dead. Uh, I've commanded nature. I just fed 4,000 yesterday. <laughs> it was a good day. I mean, what is wrong with you? He said, no sign will be given. He turns, gets in the boat, walks away. It is a sad day when Jesus walks away. Not because he's not willing to forgive, but because the person's heart has become so hard. And, and I, I want to I take a couple minutes here and flesh this out. I want to talk to two groups of people here. I want to talk to those who are Christ followers, and I want to talk to those who aren't. You're, just, you're here seeking, exploring, checking out Jesus. Let's talk about this, how it applies to both of our lives. For those of us who are Christ followers, we, we often are way too lackadaisical about our Christian walk you know, our relationship with Jesus. We, we're just so quick to put things on autopilot and assume that we can just kind of ignore God and ignore the leading of the Holy Spirit and that we'll just stay the same and that we'll always just keep on following Jesus. And we just kind of assume. And, you know, the New Testament is full of warnings to us. You know, theologians will debate, is it possible for someone who's truly kind of come to Christ to lose that relationship with Christ? Is that possible or like if someone looks like they're a true Christian and then later on they walk away from Jesus and they don't want anything to do with him, were they really a Christian or, and, they, and they stopped being one or, or were they really never, it looked like they were, but they never, and theologians will debate this, right? You've heard these debates. But one thing the Bible is really clear on and most people will agree on is that the mark of a true Christ follower is they keep on following. 
to the end. And that anyone who doesn't is not a Christ follower. So you can argue whether they were or they weren't, or they, they were at one point and they're not now, or they kind of look like they were. But the New Testament's really clear that one thing Christ followers do is they keep on following. Right? So, so for example, I want you to turn in your Bible. These are kind of some late ads I did. And so let's turn in our Bibles. They're not in the note sheet, but uh, Hebrews chapter 3. Anyway, let me give you one example. I'm going to give you two examples. Uh, Hebrews, this is very consistent teaching in the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 3. Uh, let me set it up. The book of Hebrews is written to a group of Jewish Christ followers who have recently come to Jesus and are suffering a lot of persecution from the Jewish community. They, they, they've come to believe in Jesus as their Messiah, and it's not going over big, so they've, some have been thrown in prison, some of their goods have been consecrated, uh, have been uh, cons, uh, cons, whatever. And, uh, <laughs> and <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. And, uh, and so uh, a lot of them are being tempted to, to kind of give up on Jesus, turn away from Jesus, and go back to just avoid the, um, the, the, the persecution. And, and the writer to Hebrews says, you cannot do that. If you give up on Jesus, you, you're not going to be saved. I mean, you have to continue to follow him, right? And so, and he, and he says, it's kind of like the nation, he uses the exact example I used earlier. He's like the nation of Israel. They came out of Egypt and, and experienced the power of God in their life, the Red Sea, and powerful they ended up all dying in the wilderness because they, they stopped following. He says, that's what's going to happen to you. And, and so in chapter 3, in verse 12, I want you to notice what he says. It's kind of powerful. Um, remember, this is written to Christ followers, right? Brothers in Christ. He says, see to it, brothers, Christ followers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily as long as it's called today so that none of you may be what? hardened, sorry, hardened by sin's deceitfulness, right? So often we assume that, hey, we've came to Christ, we're good to go, we'll just keep following him all our days. That, the New Testament constantly says, don't assume that. It constantly says, no, 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 stay on guard, encourage one another, just keep on growing because if you stop listening to the Holy Spirit, you start resisting the Holy Spirit, you start buying into the lives of sin, your heart's gonna get hardened, it can come to a place you don't wanna follow Jesus. And then he, he, he goes on and he says this, and this is kind of the message of the New Testament, he says, we have come to share in Christ if we hold firmly till the, in, till the end the confidence we had at first. The mark of a Christ far as they keep on following. Then he goes on to talk about Israel and the example of them dying in the wilderness after experiencing this great salvation out of, of Egypt. Now turn with me to, to the right in your Bible to 2 Peter. This is also a late ad. You're kind of wondering, well, what did you have before? I'm not going to tell you. Uh, 2 Peter chapter 1. Now Peter is writing to Christ far. So he's going to say this exact same thing, just a different way. Uh, but he says in verse 3, all right, uh, 2 Peter uh, 1, 3 says, his divine power, God's p divine power has given us everything we need. As followers of Jesus, he's given us everything we need for life and godliness. He's given us everything we need to live this new life of following Jesus. And it comes through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and 
goodness. And through these, these, this character of his, he's given us these very great and precious promises so that through them that we can participate in the divine nature. We can become like Jesus and we can escape the corruption that's in this world by evil desires. So we can move in this whole new life that God has. And so he says, so for this very reason, I want you to make every effort. And it's a great word in Greek. It's, it's this word called spudazo. It's where we get the word spuds and potatoes from. Not really. But anyway, it's, 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 um, it's this word called, just see if you're checking, you're listening. It's called spudazo. And it means like to really, like you're straining in a race, right? Like you're just like, whoa, you're going for it. So, so spudazo, make every effort. Uh, to add to your faith. So you, you've come, you're a follower of Jesus, you believe in Jesus. So he says, now you need to add to that faith. And he begins to talk about some character qualities, all right? So what he's saying is, as a follower of Jesus, he's given us everything we need to follow Jesus. And, and Jesus is gonna mentor us, the Holy Spirit's gonna mentor us. And he says, so as you go, these are the character qualities you need to be adding. And he's gonna give us a bunch of character qualities. I'm not gonna spend a lot of time on them, kind of breaking them down just for the sake of time. But let's go through them. He says, so make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and then to your goodness, uh, knowledge, spiritual knowledge, and then to your knowledge, self-control, and to your self-control, we're going to add some perseverance, and to your perseverance, we're going to add some godliness, and to your godliness, we're going to add some brotherly kindness, and then to your brotherly kindness, we're going to add love. So he's describing this process of growth, you know, Holy Spirit's teaching you about this, now he's teaching you about this, and he's teaching about this, and you're, just, you're just growing, and he's mentoring you, and you're growing to become like Jesus, sharing the divine nature more and more, becoming like him, right? And so then he says in verse 8, for if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, notice that, in increasing, you're growing, you're changing, then they will keep you from being ineffective, and what's the next word? Unproductive in your knowledge of Jesus. Like, like coming to Jesus is just the first step. Now we're in this growth process, this transformation process, and so he says, just keep on, you know, growing, following him. And he says, verse 9, but if anyone does not have them, he's nearsighted and he's blind. He's forgotten that he's been cleansed from his past sins. And then he goes on, therefore, my brothers, be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure. What's he saying? Make sure you're a true follower of Jesus. And he says, well, he says, for if you do these things, you know, you keep on growing, you will never fail. And you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You see? He said, hey, hey, what's the best way not to go too far? Oh, it's to run full speed in the opposite direction. See, so the wrong question is, hey, how far away from Jesus can I get and not go too far. Like, like, how stupid can I be and not become a permanent idiot? <laughs> like, how much can I screw up my life and still be rescued? Right? He says, no, no, no. He says, he says, you're followers of Jesus. You've been given everything you need for this new life. So just, just run hard, spudazzo. Man, just bear down, just grow, and, and, and let the Holy Spirit lead you, and as he shows you new things, you add to your faith some goodness, and you're, let's just sprinkle a little self-control there, and then let's, let's move on to some brotherly love, and, and just some godliness, and let's just keep on, as God, you see, that's what we need to be, and if we're headed in that direction, 
We never have to worry about hardening our heart to the point we walk away from Jesus altogether. Can I tell you something? I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. But if I did, I bet they'd go up all over this auditorium. Someone that you knew in your life, you were in church together, you were in a small group together, they were a relative, and they claimed to be a follower of Jesus. And they were, they were growing in their life. And now, years later, they have rejected Jesus altogether. And I bet that most of us here would know someone like that. And you say, how does that happen? Well, it happens because you think you can ignore the voice of the Holy Spirit and you'll always be okay. No, you can harden your heart to the point you're not okay. And so we don't want to go that route. Now, I told you I want to talk to Christians and then non-Christians, right? People here that you're just exploring Jesus, you're checking him out. What does this mean for us? Well, when, you're on the, when God is working on you to, to draw you to himself to become a follower of Jesus, you sense it. Like you're in a time of teaching like this, and you can sense God calling you, right? There's a hunger in your heart, but there's also a fear. There's a fear if I give my life to Jesus, maybe he'll mess up my life, or it might lead to persecution, or I don't know what it's going to cost, or I'm going to have to clean up my act, or whatever the thing is, whatever your fear is, right? And so the enemy is right there saying, hey, don't make a decision for Jesus today. Just put it off. You want to think this thing through. And so, and so there's a ten- tendency to put off responding to what God's doing in our life. There's a very interesting passage. We won't look there just for, a look of, for the sake of time, but in Romans chapter 2, Paul's talking to a person who sees himself as self-righteous. Like, they don't really need Jesus. They're basically a good moral person. They don't really need Jesus. And Paul says, you have got to be very careful. He says, don't misinterpret the kindness and the patience of God. He said that kindness and patience is meant to lead you to repentance. And if you do not repent, he said what's happening is you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath. See? And so the message of you here, you're not a follower of Jesus, is don't wait too long. Don't think there'll always be another day because the longer you resist, often the harder your heart becomes. And you can get to a place where you're like the Pharisees. It's not that Jesus won't take you. It's that you don't want to be taken. Okay, now second principle. I'm going to go faster. The second one goes like this, um, that it takes God to open our eyes. And this one flows from the life of the disciples. First principle flowed from the life of the Pharisees, but uh, we, we've seen this, that these men, and this is a major theme in Mark, we've seen it over again, these men, they're followers, they've had every advantage, haven't they? I mean, Jesus handpicked them to follow him. They've been with him 24-7. They've seen the miracles. They've heard the teaching. While he taught the crowds in parables, he taught them one-on-one, gave them private instruction. They've had every advantage, and yet we've seen today that as we come to almost the high point of Mark, the middle section of Mark, where the, the, the teaching time is over, that they're not any further ahead than everyone else. They're just like blind. Jesus says, are, are your hearts hardened too? Like, what's wrong with you? You're just not getting this. And what this highlights is as the human race There is something desperately broken about us. We have eyes, but we cannot see. 
way of this. You know, often someone will say, if I could just be in the time of Jesus and see the miracles, then I could believe. No, you wouldn't. Because you're part of the human race. We're all dense. And so the only way for a man or a woman to come to Christ is for a supernatural work of God in their life. Where God opens our eyes to who Jesus is and what it's the only way. If you're here today and you're a follower of Jesus, you are a walking miracle. Because there's no way. You, you could never come. It's the only way. In fact, Jesus said in John 6, says, no one can come to the Father unless I draw him. Impossible. If you've been drawn to Jesus, it's because he's at work in your life. Now, here's the thing. This work that Jesus does, this work, the work that God does, this work of illumination where he opens our eyes, in a couple chapters, well, at the end of this chapter, we'll see this where Jesus says to Peter, when the light begins to go on for the apostles, who Jesus really is, this is what Jesus will say. He'll say, Peter, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who's in heaven. Okay? And, and so, so this is not a one-time thing. When someone comes to Jesus and the eyes begin to open, it's not a one-time. This process of illumination is going to go on through your life. It's like there in your note sheet, great verse from Philippians. I love this verse where Paul says to these new believers in Rome, he says, he who began a good work in us. Now, who is that? It's God. Yeah, God began that work. He began opening our eyes, and he gave us the gift of salvation. He drew us in. He who began a good work in you, he will carry it out to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. You see, our lives, as followers of Jesus, they're supernatural from beginning to end. And so we're going to see this in the life of the disciples. At this point, they don't get it. By the end of this chapter, they will. They're going to begin to see, not real clearly, but God's going to begin to open their eyes to who Jesus is, and we're going to watch in the future as they, they go through the death and the resurrection of Jesus, and their eyes are getting a little clearer, and then the Holy Spirit comes to get clearer. They're going to move from darkness to light. Okay? It's going to be a process. If you've ever been out, outdoors, like uh, before dawn, it's pitch black. It's, it's a process, isn't it? You watch the sun slowly rise, and that's what's going to happen in their life. And they're, but they're going to get really clear on it in the end. And this is what happens in our life, too, is that when a man or woman comes to Jesus, there is an awakening. Sometimes it's a flash of lightning. It lights up the sky. We see who Jesus is right away. It's fast. Sometimes it's like the dawning of a new day. You see it over time. But either way, we start off by illumination, by insight. God gives us insight into see the unseen, and we see it. We give our life to Jesus. We ask to come into our life to forgive us, to teach us how to follow him, to give us a new life, this life, the next life. And it all begins, right? But that process continues, and, and just like it continued in them, it continues in us. Now, here's the thing I want you to understand, and I want you to write this phrase down. I think it's how you that every insight is an invitation. Okay, can you write that down? Every insight is an invitation. Like when, when Jesus, as a follower of Jesus, when he gives you an insight, it is an invitation to follow him into that new reality. Does this make sense? So it's like, it's not like Jesus like, ah, they look so bored today. You know, they forgot their phone at home and they don't have People Magazine around. Um, I'm going to give an insight 
just to entertain them. It's not like that. That every time Jesus opens our eyes to a truth about who he is, who we are, how life works, it's it's an invitation to step into that insight and to grow. Okay, so, so for example, uh, he may speak into your life, and there, it may be uh, an insight about the importance of sexual purity. It could be an insight into uh, your finances or insight into the way you do money, into your parenting, right? He could show you that, like as a mom, you're being very narcissistic and you're just parking your kids in front of the TV for all these hours and their minds are rotting and you're just missing a tremendous opportunity to raise your kids the way they should be raised, and that, that if you will like, begin to invest in their lives intentionally, that 15 years from now, you'll have totally different kids than if you don't, right? And so that insight comes to you, and you begin to, he begins to show you that, and you can either, what I want you to catch is every insight is an invitation. And as we step into that invitation, we grow and we change and we begin to live what Peter called productive lives. The lives we're intended to, to live, you see. Or we can reject that insight that he's giving. He's calling you to spend more time with him, and you're rejecting that. He's calling you to surrender your pride and go apologize to your wife and take ownership for your marriage. He's calling you to surrender this idol of money in your life. It's ruining your life. And you can reject that insight. And here's what I want you to catch. Every time we reject insight from Jesus, we become a little bit more like the Pharisees. And what happens for most of us is we keep coming to church, we keep going to life groups, We add more mental knowledge, and because of that, we see ourselves as more spiritual. The reality is our hearts are becoming a little bit harder, and we're becoming more like the Pharisees. See, Jesus, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees. What is that yeast? It's taking the insights of God, rejecting them, and pretending like we're pursuing God when we aren't. And nothing will destroy us faster. I would rather you go out and commit high-handed sin than to reject the insight of Jesus and pose as a Christ follower. Because when we're out there in the world and we're sinning with a high, it will beat us up. And there's greater hope for us coming back and being healed. But when you're lying to yourself that you're seeking God and you're not, there comes a time where even Jesus walks away from that. It's the worst. It's the worst of lies. It's religious lie. And so Jesus would say to us today as a church, beware the yeast of the Pharisees. Let's pray. Father, we just come and we want to heed this word, Lord. We want to be with the disciples in the boat, Lord. They they were often slow, but the one thing they had for you is they always stood, they always stayed with you. And because of that, they were able to be transformed. And Lord, we, we want to hear this challenge from you. Are you so slow? And not run from that, but to embrace it. 
God, we don't want to ask for more signs. Well, I just need God to be clear with me. Like he's been so clear and we've rejected. And so, Lord, we just want to come as a church. We want to seek you now. We want to ask that you would expose our hearts that during this time of worship, you'd speak to us, reveal our hearts. If there's any area where we've been resistant to your Holy Spirit shining you on and we think we're spiritual and the reality is we're Pharisees. We just pray you'd reveal that now that we could repent, that we could ask you in, we get back on track and begin to grow and live the productive lives you've called us to live. We pray that as we worship, Lord, as we receive our offerings, you'd meet us now in Christ's name. Amen. Let's pray together. Would you just do me a favor and join me on your knees? Let's go before the Lord, and let's make that our prayer. Lord, this is our prayer, that you would have your way. God, we want to live the lives that you've called us to live. We, we believe you lived for us and died for us, that we might live with you a whole new life. We might rise with you in a resurrection a life that's full of meaning and purpose and joy. It's life as it's meant to be lived. It's what you said. I have come that they might have life and have it to the full. And, and God, so many times we're like the disciples. We're just not very smart, so we run off our own ways. We think we know better. And our life begins to fall apart. And our relationship with you begins to become distant. And we begin to have hardened hearts from the deceitfulness of sin. And God, we just want to confess that today. And we want to come back to you. And if there's some here, maybe you're here today and you're a follower of Jesus, but you've been walking both sides of the street. You've not been listening. The, Lord, the Lord's been speaking to you about your anger towards your wife or your priorities in your business or about calling to you to spend time with him or to change your priorities. There's something he's been speaking and you've been resisting for so long that you can hardly hear him now. And today, God is calling out to you. He's calling you not to go too far, not to continue on that path until you just don't even want to hear anymore. He's calling you to come back. And if this is your time, just now in the quietest moment, just call to him. Apologize. Ask him to heal you, to soften your heart. Come back under his leadership. And while here in the quiet of the moment, maybe you're not yet a follower of Jesus. You're a seeker. You're an honest seeker. You truly want to know God, but you've been afraid to surrender your life to Jesus. You're afraid he might mess it up or it might cost you something that's painful. And you just need to know that he loves you deeply. And that may be true. There may be something you have to leave behind. There may be a cost involved. But what you'll receive is a hundred times more than you would ever give up. And he's calling to you. And there's an evil one that's an enemy who's telling you to put that decision off. I just want to challenge you. Do not put it off. To receive Jesus as your Lord, as your Savior. Call to him today. Ask him to come into your life. Ask him to forgive you. To teach you. He will. If you're sincere, he will. He'll send you the gift of his spirit and the, and the promise of a new life, both this life and the next life. And so just in the quietness of this moment, ask Jesus in right now. Or maybe today when you go home, you'd get on the, the edge of your couch, the corner of your bed, you'd kneel down, you'd, you'd ask Jesus to forgive you and to come in and he will. 
And so, Lord, today we come as your people. We're on our knees. And we pray that you would help us to know our hearts like we say. And then that, and that you would take our life. We give it to you. Jesus, we want to be a church of passionate Christ followers. We don't want to be middle-of-the-road people. We don't want to have hardened hearts. We want to live the lives you've called us to live. And so we pray you'd be merciful to us, that you'd give us that illumination, and that we would realize that every insight is an invitation, and we would walk through that door, and our lives would be changed, and the lives of our families would be changed, and our future would be changed, and people around us would be changed, and others would come to Christ because we're so changed, and the beat would go on, and your name would be glorified, you receive all the honor and we would become the people we're created to be. And this is our prayer from our knees to you. We love you, and we invite you to come and be our shepherd now. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Let's rise together. Well, may the Lord be with you this week. And uh, next week, we continue this journey. We, we uh, come to a fascinating account where Jesus heals a man who's blind, but after he touches him, he says, now what can you see? He says, well, I see, it's like I've got 22,000 vision. He said, I, I can see like men walking around, they're kind of like trees. And she says, well, you need a second touch. Let's do this again. And you know, it becomes this powerful metaphor in the gospel of Mark. The apostles are about to be touched by Jesus. Their eyes are gonna be open to who he is, but they're gonna see very blurrily. It's going to, they're going to be seeing like, like seeing men, but trees walking. They're going to need a second touch. And many times in our life, we talked about illumination today, that we've come to Jesus, but we need a second touch for him to open our eyes that gives us crystal clear vision about what he's saying, why he's saying it, how to follow him into the future. So I hope you can join us next week as we probe into that passage of what it says to us as followers of Jesus. Until then, may Jesus be with you. May his voice be loud and clear in your life. May you be listening. May you take every insight as an invitation step into that, that you can be changed, transformed, your future transformed, your family transformed. You'll be a transforming agent in this culture, a light to in a dark place so that others can come and meet him, and he will receive all the glory and honor for that until the whole world one day worships and bows before him. Amen? Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a great week.